and a pleasant good evening, Mets fans, and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. It's episode 21. I'm Sam Levowitz, as always, joined by my lovely co-host, Jack Hendon. And before we jump into things, we're going to kind of tell you how this episode is going to go. It's going to be a little different than usual because we have to talk about some things that we're not super psyched that we have to talk about this week because, well, if you guys remember last week in our episode, as I was kind of going out on the outro, I said, hopefully next week we have something fun to talk about. Hopefully maybe a George Springer signing, a Brad Hand signing. Well, none of that happened. Uh, in fact, nothing good happened really in Metsland this week. Uh, and the Mets had probably about as bad a 24 hours as any team can have between Monday and Tuesday. And obviously we lost George Springer. That sucks. But we have to talk about Jared Porter. So Jack... Before we jump into the baseball stuff, and we will talk baseball in this episode, there's the Joey LaCasey acquisition we have to talk about. There's free agents that we wanted that are off the board. We will talk about all that stuff, but we have to address the elephant in the room before we really get into the baseball conversation. So Jack, let's talk Jared Porter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this was a huge shock. Um I didn't get this news until I think like a half hour after everyone else did, but I was pretty disgusted. Uh, the article was pretty detailed and, uh, you know, Jeff Posson and co took a long time working on it. Uh, they put a lot of important relevant details in there that uh, just for at, at first glance, just, just makes me sick. Um, it, it, you know, it's a good thing that Jared Porter has been held accountable this week. Uh, you know, the organization did a good job, I think, firing him pretty much on site about eight hours after the fact, uh, you know, just a sundown and a sunrise, essentially. But, uh, you know, that that kept them away from that. But it 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 sucks. Uh, and it really hits at something that, like, has nothing to do with baseball when it comes down to it, it has nothing to do with, like, front office strategy uh, has nothing to do with, uh, I think, the sport as we tend to think about it as fans, certainly how we talk about it on the podcast. But it hits at something, I think, much more important, though, which is uh, the issue of creating a culture. I think, you know, Steve Cohen and Sandy Alderson talked about, like, implementing a culture change. Uh, and this is, I think, you know, one step in a pretty long process in which hopefully as a sport we kind of begin to adopt a culture change because this really can't fly anymore and this is not going to end with Jared Porter either this is a story that came out there are, I want to I don't want to say because I don't know but I would imagine there are so many other stories that we don't know of uh, from women who are afraid to speak out about this situation I mean this took a long time to come out in part because the identity of the you know the the female reporter in question was sort of a, a an age you know an area of concern uh god i don't know sam you want to you want to help me out here i i kind of I'm, I'm i still kind of like am lost for words in a weird way yeah sure so so i'll, I'll clarify the the timeline if uh if you know just in case people aren't completely aware of, of really how it went down at this point in the cycle it's been almost a week i feel like everyone pretty much knows what happened around 11 p.m on monday night uh, Jeff Passan and Mina Kimes, who's a who's more of a, a studio host now than, than a straight up reporter. She does a lot of NFL stuff, um, but she's she's excellent. Um, posted on on ESPN a, a long article saying that Jared Porter engaged in um, basically harassment, months long harassment of a foreign female reporter. Uh, who, by the way, I apologize. I have you know, my cat in my room with me, as has happened a couple times since I've been home from school, you will hear him from time to from time to time. He's uh, rather vocal. Uh, but the there were 62 text messages that were sent by Porter to this woman after she answered the last one. 62 unanswered texts culminating in a unsolicited genital picture. Uh, that was the last message sent. There's no room for that at all in, in baseball, in journalism, it cannot fly. That behavior cannot fly. The Mets fired Porter by eight, nine o'clock the next morning. 
he was gone. Steve Cohen tweeted out that Porter was fired. It's a shame. It's, it's a goddamn shame because everything that we heard about Jared Porter when he was hired was that this is not just a very capable baseball guy. This is a caring human being. This is a good person. I, I praise that move. We both did. Porter was high on my list of candidates. He was a guy I absolutely wanted for this role and they got him and I was ecstatic. And it is so disappointing to know that even on guys who, who get this kind of praise as people, not just as baseball people, that this is the kind of stuff that can happen behind the scenes. It is extremely disappointing. And if you think that it, this is Jared Porter and now that he's fired, that, that this is an isolated incident and you, we don't have to worry about this kind of thing happening with the Mets or anywhere else in Major League Baseball, you're kidding yourself. Since Porter has, you know, since the, the story on Porter came out uh, of him being just an unabashed creep with this this foreign reporter uh there have been multiple female reporters prominent female reporters across baseball across sports including women who are on the Mets beat or who have been on the Mets beat previously including Disha Thosar who is one of the best if not the best that the Mets beat has to offer and the only woman currently on the Mets beat and Abby Mastraco who used to be on the Mets beat uh, I believe for NJ.com. And now she's a devil's beat writer. She came out and said stuff. Britt Giroli, who's an Orioles writer, I believe uh, on the beltway. She, she had some stories about being harassed by a, a player. I think on the 2012 Orioles, this is not an isolated incident. This is something that reporters and baseball employees who are women have to deal with all the time. They do not know if the men who are working with them, who are, who are reaching out to them, if they are doing so professionally or if they are doing so with ulterior motives, they are constantly having to guard themselves and be careful because this type of behavior is commonplace. This, you know, we don't know the specifics on how commonplace it is, but we know it's commonplace. We know this is something that these women have to deal with. It is frustrating for someone who wants to go into baseball journalism, like myself, this, this is unbelievably frustrating that there are people who I will have to work with face-to-face, -face, you know, God willing, I, get, I find myself in this industry. There are people that I will have to work with face-to-face -face who, are, who are like Porter. It's mind-boggling that this happens in 2021, the story in 2016, but the fact that I, I don't think that it, it stopped since 2016. It, no. those, are, those are my kind of thoughts, that it's, it's frustrating, it, it's horrible, it shouldn't happen anymore. I'm glad the Mets, you know, made quick action, but we can talk about the vetting too, because this is not something that should have been sat on for, for four years, for five years. This is something that, you know, it, it shouldn't have been kept quiet by the Cubs because there were people in the Cubs organization who were aware of this. The reporter, you know, brought it to the Cubs legal team in 2016. Yeah. They just kind of kept it hush hush. Yeah. It's mind-boggling. Yeah, and I, I certainly, I think, want to speak to that vetting process because, you know, at least for me watching the press conference, and I don't actually usually watch the press conferences. I'm kind of like a a, a, a letdown when it comes to that, but this, this time I really did tune in. Uh, I didn't understand. Now, I you know, for one thing, uh, these are, like, very, I think, uh, different circumstances from what press conferences usually are uh people are caught off guard they don't really have all their thoughts put together uh i don't want to you know burn sandy alderson at a stake for his responses but i certainly also don't want to shower the organization with any sort of affection or, or or kudos in this situation because ultimately they were a part of the reason why this story has come to light uh they failed to vet uh, through their team. And I think more importantly, and more alarmingly, they didn't have a single woman uh, on their council, you know, among their advisors who they go over these sorts of hirings with, uh, where they discuss, you know, possibilities about, you know, what kind of person Porter will be, what kind of addition he'll be. Uh, Hannah Kaiser of Yahoo Sports asked this question during the, the press conference. And it was a really, I think, important question to be asked and to be considered not just now but 
uh, every single time these sorts of decisions are made going forward, which was, did you at, were there any women there that you asked if, uh, for their opinion on, or, or, or for their, uh, insight on or their experiences i mean you could have called up anybody in the red sox front office they have a number of women who work there uh the mets failed to do that uh there are and again this isn't i'm not trying to make the mets a scapegoat here or hold the mets to a a a higher standard than other teams because i'm a fan make no mistake that has this has nothing to do with like the mets you know, like doing Mets things, bungling Mets things. This has nothing to do with the Mets in that sense. They're not victim. We're not victims of the Mets doing something wrong. Uh, women in baseball are victims of people in baseball, including the Mets failing them because the Mets didn't have a system in place for this. And they're not the only team that doesn't. So I don't know. I mean, I, that's a question that Sandy Alderson answered basically by s- suggesting that, you know, there are many women to consult to begin with. Uh, and what Hannah Kaiser said in response, very briefly, uh, very thoughtfully, was it, it's something to consider. And this is something to consider. And it's something to consider beyond this incident. Because going forward, uh, I don't want to have to keep hearing about this. That, that, that's not to say, because these things will continue to happen. It's not that I don't want to read stories about it. It's not that I don't want to be inconvenienced by that. It's just that I literally don't want to have to work in an environment ever in my life where somebody I know who's a woman is treated that way uh, or even remotely that way. Cause this was probably just the, the most shocking, one of the most shocking uh, reports that I've read and of, of, of women being mistreated, but it's not the only one. Yeah. When, when Kaiser asked that question, when Hannah Kaiser asked that question, I, I let out an audible gasp because she asked, the question of the press conference. She was not one of the first questions. She was, you know, a few questions down the line, sixth, seventh, eighth question down the line. Everyone who had asked a question before her, I believe with with the exception of Disha Thosar, was a man. They were all asking him, you know, are the are you guys going to hire a new GM? What does this mean for the organization? What was the timeline of events? That kind of thing. She she straight up asked the tough question. She threw a missile at Sandy Alderson and said, hey, when you were vetting him, did you talk to any women? And he said, no, because in he, the way he, he explained it, the way he defended that, which is the correct defense of it. It's a shame. It has to be this way, but it is, it is an actual defense is the fact that there are very few women working in baseball operations at higher up positions that you could vet a candidate with. There have been three women in baseball history who have held an assistant GM position or higher. Obviously we've had one woman who's been a GM and that happened earlier this offseason with Kim Eng. One of those three women, Raquel Ferrara works with the Red Sox was working there at the time as an assistant GM overlapping with Porter when he was with the Red Sox. Now I, I tweeted about that. It gained some traction and people were saying, so what do you, you think that he was going to, he was sending these kind of lewd messages these inappropriate messages to, to Ferrara, who essentially was his boss. You think he'd be sending these kind of messages to his boss? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that Sandy Alderson, by saying there was no one we could have talked to, was factually inaccurate. He could have talked to this one specific woman if he had actually wished to diversify the voices at the table. You could have had conversations with, with women here. Like, there are women that know Jared Porter. <laughs> Women in baseball who know Jared Porter, Farrar are probably the, the highest profile one. Yes, there's very few women in higher up executive positions in baseball operations. That needs to change. But when I tweeted that, I was merely pointing out, like, we can't just sit here and pretend that there weren't any. But I'm not saying he was sending inappropriate messages to every woman, every woman he knew, including a boss. But I'm saying that it's important that we have to diversify voices in these conversations that if we're really focusing on making systematic change within baseball and within sports and making it more of an open environment for people who look different than me and Jack, who look different than Bryn Alderson and Tommy Tanis and uh, Ben Zosmer and Zach Scott and Sandy Alderson, who are the Mets, you know, that's the inner circle in the Mets front office. They're all white guys. If we want to diversify voices, if we want to, 
include people of different backgrounds and experiences. We have to actually include the ones that are already here. And then we have to bring more in. Yeah. And we have to make it a safer place so more people will want to be brought in. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's all perfectly said. Probably, you know, took the words out of my mouth there. I do have one thing to add, and then I think we'll go to break, Sam, unless you have anything else. Uh, I mean, yeah, kind of just reissuing a, the statement that I made earlier about how I don't want to hear about this happening again. I think it's important to diversify voices, uh, but we can't just do this in the wake of harassment in the wake of abuse uh in the wake of assault which also happens a lot in the sport that players are responsible for in many cases uh we need to continue to amplify the voices of women in baseball regardless of uh these sorts of circumstances because ultimately we we sort of through this rinse and repeat it's gonna i think get to a point where we don't actually even consider that women in baseball may actually have other ideas because all we ever read are articles, perfectly worded, exceptional articles from women about their experiences, but they're more than their experiences. And I think that's something that we should all take away from this as well. Um, right. This is behavior we got to hold accountable at all times. Uh, it's something that can't fly. It's something that if you see taking place really in any circumstance, doesn't matter if you're a college athlete, uh, who isn't, you know, connected to the Mets or this major league scenario in any way. Uh, I think we need to, we need to ask women for their input more often than just after these sorts of things happen, because ultimately they're more than just, you know, reporters who get the short end of the stick and get abused and get uh, pelted with, with lewd messages. Uh, and we need to start treating them like that more often. Right. Like just to, kind of tack on to that point it's like this is something that i feel like we always have these conversations when something like this happens for like a news cycle where it's like okay we have to uplift uplift female voices now we have to uplift women that that we work with in the industry people that we women with great ideas like i know at metsmerize we've been pushing women's stories this week and we have like half a dozen maybe more really great uh women on our writing staff who, who are extremely capable and who have written great things uh, but it's similar to like over the summer when we were dealing with the Black Lives Matter protests where it's like, okay, now's the time to uplift black voices where, yes, I agree. Absolutely. But that's not just, that shouldn't be contained to the one news cycle. That shouldn't be contained to like a two week window after a black man gets killed or after a woman gets like accosted with lewd images. Like this is, this is, we should always be doing that. We should always be uplifting black voices or minor brown voices, minority voices, women voices, gay and trans voices. Like we have to constantly uplift those kind of voices because they need to be heard. Otherwise, we are in this echo chamber where people are only listening to great like white men grandstanding about this kind of thing or white men disagreeing with this kind of thing. Like there are people that have thought Porter is a result of cancel culture. And that he's lost his career and, oh, he's, you know, poor man was texting a woman and she was responding. And because of that, he lost his job. No, that's not what we're talking about here. No, he'll be fine. I promise you, Jared Porter will be fine in the long run. He might not work in baseball anymore, but he will be fine in the long run. Like, this is not cancel culture. Cancel culture is not a thing. This is called accountability. Yeah. Like, there are, it blows my mind. There are people that actually think that Porter was wronged here, but... Mm -hmm. That's a topic for, you know, a different conversation. Uh, we've been talking about this for close to 20 minutes now. And, you know, and Jack, unless you have anything to add, I think it's probably time for us to uh, head to our, our little mini Metsmerized commercial that we, we threw in last week. And we're going to keep doing that because it's a, it's a nice way to, to change pace as we head into uh, still depressing because the Mets kind of have uh, fewer options on the board now, but a less depressing subject matter. So let's, let's hear from our sponsor and then let's talk baseball. Hey Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, 
then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. So Joey LaCasey is a New York Met now, and that's something that kind of fell by the wayside because, you know, a couple hours after he was acquired, the, the Porter thing came to light. But let's let's talk baseball now that we're on the other side of this break. Uh, again, I'm Sam Lovitz, joined by Jack Hendon on your Pleasant Good Evening podcast. The Mets uh, tacked on as the third team in a three-team trade on Monday afternoon and acquired left-hander Joey LaCasey as part of uh, the, the Joe Musgrove trade to the Padres that has given the Padres a very formidable rotation. The Mets only gave up their 15th-ranked prospect, uh, uh, Andy Rodriguez, who, depending on who you ask, is either a catcher or a center fielder. He's an interesting prospect, but not one that I don't think anyone is crying over. LaCasey, 27 years old. He's a lefty out of California with a very Italian name. It would be probably pleasant for a lot of our, our listeners to hear that the, his hometown in California is Newark, California. The wrong Newark, but still a Newark for an Italian-sounding last name. Uh, this is like a good move. Right. We're in, we're in agreement yeah. there. Yeah, I, I think it's a good move. I mean, Lucchese didn't really have a spot with the Padres uh, even before Musgrove had been acquired because uh, they still have Denelson Lamette and Chris Paddock in that rotation. Uh, but people do sleep on the fact that Lucchese for a time when the Padres were still, I think, developing their their, you know, their roster didn't have much of a rotation. And he was probably their most consistent pitcher. Uh, he was probably at the top of that depth chart. Uh, admittedly among the likes of like Matt Strom, Eric Lauer, Luis Perdomo, but still, I mean, this was somebody that they, they gave the ball to every fifth day and uh, he did a pretty good job. And I don't think much has changed for the most part, except his role being diminished. Uh, he's not really a huge strikeout guy. Those numbers have sort of fallen year to year, uh, but so have the walks he's, 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 he's made adjustments. Um, he doesn't give up as many home runs. Now he does not throw that hard. Uh, he's not, a Steven Matz, he's a little bit more of a David Peterson in that regard. Fastball sits about 90 to 91, but he has this really fun little change-up curveball pitch that he calls the churve that is basically impossible to track. Uh, you go between Fangraphs, Baseball Savant, uh, you know, Stack Corner, they all evaluate this guy's pitch differently. The values are really strange, but it's a fun moving pitch to look at. Uh, hitters can't really figure it out, righty or lefty. Uh, I don't know. I, and he has two minor league options. That's the other thing that's huge here is that Joey Lucchese is somebody that the Mets could very easily stash and decide that he's not going to be the fifth starter. Like this is not a case where like last year when they acquired Rick Porcello, for instance, and they signed him, it was like, you know, well, he's just there now. He's, this is the, the fixed spot in the rotation that belongs to him. That doesn't really stand with Joey Lucchese. Like anything can happen to him. So I think it's a it's an interesting move. It's one the Mets did a good job acting on. Lucchese is like the textbook definition of an average major league starting pitcher. And I mean that literally. Like, I mean that literally. Between 2018 and 2019, he only made three starts in 2020. But between 2018 and 2019, where the majority of his innings as a major leaguer have come, he has a ERA plus of 100. And if you're not familiar with ERA plus... It is a weight stat that weighs your, basically weighs your ERA and other stuff. I, I won't really complicate it. It weighs it against the rest of the league with 100 being the benchmark, the average. And he's at 100 <laughs> perfectly <laughs> over those two years combined. Like he is the definition of average. He will strike out about eight to nine batters per, per nine. He will uh, not walk all that many. And he keeps the ball in the ballpark and he's funky and weird and doesn't throw hard, but you know, 
has some some sink on his fastball and has that weird curve pitch. And the biggest thing here is that he is one controllable and two optionable. He gives the Mets choices and depth. He is a guy that could throw 30 starts for the Mets this year. And I think that that would be perfectly fine if he is that league average pitcher that we think he is. Mm-hmm. He's also a guy that you could, you know, keep in triple A for half the season, or you could shift him over the pen for a little bit as a swing guy, or you could do whatever the heck you want to do with him. Yeah. He's got, what is he, four years of control left? I think so. He debuted in 2018. So that sounds about right. Uh, yeah, that's, that's probably where I kind of stand with him. I mean, in a perfect world, I don't think Joey Lucchese is starting every fifth day for the Mets. I think right now what we basically have is we have Jacob deGrom, we have Carlos Carrasco, we have Marcus Stroman, uh, and then four and five are still kind of unclear because you have David Peterson, you have Steven Matz, you have no Syndergaard eventually coming back, but I, I think that it's smartest if the organization treat this like you know, one of those deadline acquisitions where they have an actual option in place for the first half of the season. Um, you know, among depth options right now, there's like Jared Eikhoff, and then you start to scrape the bin a little bit more. You get guys like Corey Oswald and Franklin Kilmay and, you know, God forbid, Robert Kesselman, if they really want to make him a starter. I think Lucchese fits that layer very well. I think he, he adds to that a great deal. Uh, I mean, yeah, the, the thing about it, though, is like I kind of I don't know, man. I mean, I wish they'd sign another starter who is better than Lucchese. It's not that I don't like it. I like that they got in on it, and I don't think they gave up a whole lot. It's just that we do kind of have, like, a whole offseason left. I don't necessarily know if this is the envelope. In a, in a Under previous administration, yes, this would be a win, and this would be the offseason. This would, as Brody says, you know, blow the cover off of our ceiling. But uh, as much as I like Lucchese, I'm also still, like, very dead set on actually smoothing over the active roster with players who – I know are going to be there the whole time. Yeah. I think that this is a, I believe that this is a win for the Mets. Even if Lucchese throws one inning ever as a Met, I just, because you didn't give up anything for him and he is controllable and optionable. Like he is, he is the kind of high level depth piece that teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees are able to acquire kind of under the radar and utilize I'm not like, I don't want him to be like the Mets third best starter, but he's the fifth or sixth starting pitcher on your depth chart. Like you can get away with that. And sure, you know, there's still possibly room for them to to go out and sign another starting pitcher. They should probably bring in two or three guys on non-roster invites who can start. Mm -hmm. Like there was a, there was a report that said that they had had conversations with Trevor Williams, who is a sinker baller who had been on on the pirates for a number of years and was non-tendered, who would be another one of those, kind of high-end non-roster invites that they should really be considering here. Um, not quite in the same vein as, as uh, Jose Martinez because he wasn't a non-roster invite, but kind of of that same cheap if he's on the major league roster, don't have to really worry about him if he's not kind of situations. Uh, it, it's just a good move. It's a good move that good teams make. This is not a move that, that a Will Pond Mets would have made, uh, I don't think, at least. And, you know, I'm happy with it. Yeah, I'm happy with it. I mean, yeah, it's it's just the fact that, like, I think that market keeps picking up and that the, the clock is kind of ticking. That now it's almost as, you know, because really the other element of this that I think is kind of sobering is that, uh, you know, the, the human element of this aside, because we had some pretty startling reports a few hours after the Lucchese acquisition. But uh, speaking strictly to baseball here, it was, you know, the day after that, George Springer signed with Toronto, and then the dominoes kind of started to fall. Uh, you know, Enrique Hernandez and Garrett Richards both signed with the Red Sox, so they're both off the board. Like, we still need a center fielder. We still need, in my mind, a four starter who could transition to five uh, or potentially take a back seat to, like, a David Peterson when Noah Syndergaard returns. Like, we still have things that we need to do. The Yankees, like, just made a trade, a borderline heist for – Jamison Tyone, who might not pitch that much given the injury history, but it's still like he was probably the best thing the Pirates had left uh, in that pitching staff. Um, I would have really loved to have him on the Mets. So I'm, I'm still very, I think, 
concerned about what happens next or not concerned, but like focused on, cause I trust, I trust this regime, but. Yeah. I mean, I got, I got takes on the Yankees if, but we're not going to talk Yankees. Um, all I will say is that four of their top six options on their starting pitching depth chart uh, combined for one total inning pitched in 2020. That's all I'm going to say is that everything goes well for them. Great. You got a very good rotation, but the floor is literally hell for that Yankees rotation. They got some depth pieces there. But uh, in terms of the pieces that went off the board this week, I've been outspoken about how much I want George Springer, and I've been outspoken about how much I want Kike Hernandez. And I've even spoken a little bit about how much I want Gary Richards, our own you know friend and mesmerized Dilip uh, Sridhar. I really don't know how to pronounce your last name, Dilip. I'm sorry. Uh, but he, he's been banging on the gong for Garrett Richards all offseason because of the spin rates on his fastball and curveball, among other reasons. All those guys are off the board now. Uh, so now it's like, okay, what do, we, what do we do? So Springer, I was very kind of optimistic about Springer. I don't know about you, but based on what I was hearing was that Springer preferred the Mets. Geographically, he preferred the Mets, that if the offers were competitive, then – He'd be going to the Mets, even if he was getting a little bit less with the Mets, uh, as it turned out. And maybe we can even blame Jared Porter slightly a little bit for this, because that's a monkey wrench that got thrown into this whole ordeal. Um, Springer met with the Blue Jays on Tuesday, had a very productive meeting. uh, And I think what happened was he was supposed to meet with the Mets the following day um, before the, the Porter thing happened. We don't know if that was still supposed to happen even after the Porter uh, and then he probably got a really great offer from the Blue Jays in his meeting with them. And his agent probably went to the Mets and said, can you match this? And the Mets said, no, because we're not going to pay you 150 mil. That's just too much for us, right. which is fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he said, okay, f- cool. I'm going to sign with the Blue Jays. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the pretty, I think that's a fair assessment of the timeline. We don't know that's true. Yeah, well, hopefully that, I mean, to an extent is the case, because if it, um, you know, if it turns out that they didn't want to offer $30 million a year to Springer, they almost certainly aren't going to do that for Trevor Bauer, uh, who I really just don't want. I mean, we talked a little bit about the, you know, the the culture change as it is. I think it's it speaks very poorly of the organization if they go the route they do after I think alienating women in, in sports to take somebody who has the history online that Trevor Bauer has, um, they, you know, they avoid him. I'm perfectly fine with that. Cause I also don't really think they need someone of his ilk as a, as a player either. Uh, but yeah, it, they, they have like 32 million left to spend. So ultimately like they have to slice that up in a way that keeps the defense strong benefits, the outfield, you know, stabilizes the rotation Hopefully you also get some, you know, some, some help for your bullpen, but uh, you know, among the options that are left, they're still talking to Brad hand. Um, I don't really know if I'm as enthused with it now as I was then, although I've never really been that enthused because I think he probably wants a multi-year deal and I don't think his arm has more than one more year in it. Um, And then you have like Jackie Bradley jr. Who I really like, but he's probably going to want to play every day. Uh, I think the Mets will need to, you know, grapple with that along with the fact that he's not a right-handed hitter. I mean, the best right-handed hitting outfielder that's left is like Albert Almora. Um, and then after him, it's Kevin Pilar. And then after him, it's like Cameron Maben. So, I mean, a lot of options to play with. Colton Wong is one that I've heard a little bit about as, as worth the, the scenario in question being they sign Colton Wong, put him at second base and move Jeff McNeil to third base which would round out your infield and keep every defensive aspect of that diamond shining, but also like outfield defense is pretty important. Brandon Nimmo is not really a plus defender in left field. Michael Conforto is not exactly a plus defender in right. So you need some glue to hold it together. I think they got it. They got to do something about Jackie Bradley. Yeah, I would sign Bradley. I would, I would do it and I would pair him with a right-handed option like an Almora. I think Almora fits really well. Uh, I would not touch Kevin Pilar with a 10 foot pole because he doesn't really, he can't really play center field anymore. Um, wouldn't really touch Jake Marisnik either. Cause we just kind of did that. And he wasn't really that good in center. Uh, no. He wasn't as advertised. No, he looks um, to, to the thing about Colton Wong. My feeling on Colton Wong is that if we're going to do that, 
if we're going to pay Colton Wong to play second base and play Jeff McNeil at third, Luis Guillorme already exists. Colton Wong is kind of just like a shinier version of Guillorme. Yeah. Like maybe a tiny little more, more power and he's a faster runner, but they're both great defensive infielders and with kind of like who are singles hitters. Like you're not really getting all that different a player. He's just going to be a little more expensive than Guillorme because mm-hmm. Guillorme is still pre-arbitration. Whereas you'd be signing Colton Wong to six, $7 million contract. I would assume. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm not really sold on that. I think you do have to bring in another major league caliber infielder. Mm-hmm. I think a Tommy Lestello would fit if you're looking a little more offensive minded who, you know, Lestello is a local guy too. Hey, Tommy. Hey, we, Tommy. You at, you know, baseball. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not convinced Brad Brock comes out of me. I'm not convinced Brad Brock's going to make the, the opening day roster. So we probably need to find our New Jersey guy elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Listella fits that bill. You always got to have a New Jersey guy on this roster. Yeah. Uh, of course, the other option there is Todd Frazier. We could bring him back again. Please don't. Please no. don't. Please Fly don't. The moon. Please. Don't um, play for the moon. Yeah. All right. Uh, we got we got to fill our New Jersey guy quota. Yeah. Is Oliver Drake a New Jersey guy? I know he's a Brad Brock guy in terms of the the setup and what he throws. But is he here? I'm gonna look this up. Oliver Drake. If Looking he is, I really right want now. him. I really want him anyway because he's like a he's not a left-handed pitcher, but he's very good against left-handed pitching. Very good. Uh, no, he's from Massachusetts. Yeah, that Damn fits it. too. It, you got to get it, your New Jersey guy in there. It's a yeah. I mean, you know who I really like too, though. Who I'm not sure if he's a New Jersey guy. I got no idea, but I I don't really care for that of that aspect of it. Is Marcus Semyon because you know he'd probably need a little bit more of a raise to play third base because I know he's naturally a shortstop, but he's talked at length about how willing he is to do that. I think the Mets have a good enough team to, I think, attract him. He's somebody who has had one exceptional offensive year with Oakland, a handful of above average offensive seasons, but pretty much every year, regardless of what he's hit, because the OPS is usually between like the low 700s and like the mid 800s is good defense. He's always making the plays, making good throws, uh, he was like that at third base too when he was coming up with the White Sox. Uh, like to see how much he's owed, but if he's the guy that you end up like going over luxury tax for, I think that's a good thing. He's a right-handed bat. Uh, you know, Oakland A's fans really liked him. Uh, I think Met fans would take a liking to him as well. If not, you know, from an ability level, but just because of what he consistently does well, which is field. I mean, we how many good fielders have we had along the third base side in the last like twenty years? Like, it, like. David Wright with, you know, with the bare hand, like Robin Ventura. And then like, I don't know who's the next, like it's, it's a, it's a short list, but Simeon's a good dude. Yeah. I'm, I'm on board with Simeon too, for sure. For, for playing third base. Uh, He's in, he's an interesting guy. He was a really terrible shortstop when he first came up, like really terrible, tons mm-hmm. of throwing errors, um, double digits below zero negative in, in like DRS, like bad improved very very much um kind of coinciding with matt chapman getting playing time and and breaking out at third base because as we know especially anyone who knows me and how much i love matt chapman matt chapman's the best defensive third base uh third baseman in baseball more so than arenado and we were kind of doing a deep dive into this in our you know with mets marais the other day um and we we the numbers are so fascinating when Semyon is playing shortstop next to Matt Chapman, he is like a miles better defender because there's a reason for that too. Chapman plays the, one of the deepest third bases in baseball and he gets to pretty much everything in that hole between third and short because he plays so deep and he has the arm to make up for it. So Semyon doesn't need to like make any backhanded plays unless they're like a couple steps from him, anything he has to range to his backhand side for Chapman's going to get, or it's going to be a hit. So Semyon has so much less range to cover than a normal shortstop. When Chapman plays, that's kind of why he's a good defensive shortstop now because of Matt Chapman. He's pretty shorthanded. He makes the throws. Now he's improved in that regard. I think he'd be totally fine at third base, especially when you pair him with a shortstop on the left side with like Francisco Lindor, who's excellent. Who's fantastic. Um, so I think that the transition to third base would be totally fine. It, it may be not super smooth, but 
I don't think he'd be as bad as JD Davis and he's right-handed and he's, you know, relatively proven in terms of offensive ability. And I think he'd be a good fit. I think he'd get a similar contract to the one that Kike Hernandez got Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe a little more expensive. I think if you could somehow finesse Semyon, JBJ and hand and a couple of those higher end non-roster invites for starting pitchers, like a Trevor Williams, be like a really solid end to the offseason. It's a big if, because um, yeah. the other day I was saying that exact same scenario, but with Kike Hernandez instead of Marcus Semyon. Um, you could also go the route of getting one of the top couple remaining starting pitchers, not named Trevor Bauer, mm-hmm. like a James Paxton or a Masahiro Tanaka still on the market. Mm-hmm. And then using the remaining, I don't know, 10, 15 million to have after that signing to uh, to bring in another reliever or an infielder or a center fielder. Yeah. Um, but those guys, and then like Almora, yeah, there, there's, there's ways the Mets can go here. There's options left on the table. Mm-hmm. None of them are particularly exciting unless you're really trying to get creative and get like a Nolan Arenado, but that's not really an avenue I feel like going down. No, I mean, they got to extend Lindor too. That's the other thing. Uh, that's not a, I mean, it's when I say it's not a given, I mean, it hasn't happened yet. I think it's going to happen, but they need to do it. That's going to affect the payroll as well. And then hopefully they could extend one of Conforto or Syndergaard. I'm growing more and more doubtful about Conforto, just given that he's represented by Scott Boris, but Syndergaard, I think could take like a team friendly deal the way Mike Clevenger just did with San Diego. Like you could potentially finish off your off season like that. And yeah, I mean, you're going to finish above luxury tax at that point, but like, I'm not that scared of that. Like I wasn't that scared of that under previous ownership. I don't know why anyone would be that scared of it now under somebody who literally made money, made like a billion dollars during the pandemic kind of money. Like also like the luxury tax, you have to, you, you can't live over the luxury tax because the penalties are pretty harsh, but also like the collective bargaining agreement is going to expire at the end of this year and it, the, the, the framework of that might change completely. And if it does change, it's probably going to be more player friendly. It's going to give teams more space to spend so that players don't get nickeled and dimed anymore in free agency, which has happened uh, like twice in the last three off seasons. So, I mean, that's something to consider too. I don't really, I, I don't really think that like the luxury tax discourse is at all productive. Like, I think the Mets aren't afraid to go over it. I think they just want to be able to go over it in a way that hits on all the the bases because this is not something where like you sign Trevor Bauer and then your off season's over and yes, you're over the luxury tax, but not really like it's, it, it doesn't really, I think stand a reason in that respect. Like you need to do it in a way that uh, covers everything. But yeah, there's, there's, there's no reason really to, to use it as like a hard cap. There's no reason, especially when your owner's a billionaire, there's no reason. Um, especially in your first time offense, you don't get draft penalties. Like just don't blow it out of the water. I'm not saying, cause obviously I don't think you want to do that, but if you can hit every point, if you can get an infielder, if you can get a center fielder or a center field platoon, like I've vouching for with Bradley and Almora, if you can get a reliever and you can get a couple more starting pitchers on the depth angle and you're right up against the luxury tax or you're two, three, four million dollars over there is no reason why that has to discourage you like go and do that because if you add that depth all around and you you finish the team that way you're like you're a top three team in in the national league at least it's probably the dodgers the padres and and you you may have at that point leaped over the the braves yeah yeah i think that would do it i mean we talked a little bit last week about how good we are compared to the braves but i i don't think it's like that far away um, they really just need to like cover their holes. I think that the pitching is naturally going to get better uh, when they have better defenders around the infield and also hopefully center field. Like people, I think kind of like right off, like the amount of like the, the, the ways in which bad pitching years with bad pitching coincides with the years of bad defense. It's almost always because they like, they just go hand in hand. I mean, earned runs, earned run average doesn't really cover every element of it. So naturally somebody who gives up more hits through the hole because like Wilmer Flores is playing third base is going to have a higher ERA. Like that's just kind of 
I don't know, there's, there's a smart way to do this without exclusively. And I think also getting James McCann kind of helps with that. Cause he's a catcher who will actually work well with pitchers. Like I, that's something that I would kind of give the Mets credit for as, as annoying as it is that they gave him four years instead of just going the JT real Mudo route. Like those are ways that you can constructively make your pitching better, or at least make the pitchers that you currently have better. Like David Peterson, who's a ground ball pitcher is going to be so much better now that like it's Lindor at short and McNeil at second, instead of Ahmed Rosario and Robinson Cano, like things like that, I think carry over. So yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the nice thing about it, but definitely like don't stop after, you know, the next like big signing that you make. Hopefully the Mets don't do that. I think Sandy Alderson knows better than to do that. We're kind of like, I don't know. We kind of operate on this fear. I feel sometimes, or at least the two of us do. We're like, we assume because of the past ownership group, which would essentially at this point in the off season, be taking victory laps after signing like, you know, Dellen Batances or, or Jed Lowry. Uh, you know, we kind of assume that they're, that it's kind of over, but it's really not. And especially with the market, like still kind of developing because if players become cheap enough and you can just hoard a bunch of them, I think the Mets should definitely do that. Hopefully that doesn't come to that because that would be bad for labor relations, but you know, you got to play the game. Yeah. And uh, on that note, Jack, what do you say? We, we, uh, we remember some guys, our guy of the week. Yes. Guy of the week. Uh, Let's see. So this is a good one. Uh, thinking about pitching prospects, thinking about trades. Uh, I'm remembering Phil Humber. He was kind of before, uh, probably before your time, a little bit before mine too, in terms of like analyzing players who didn't play for the major league team. Cause guys could show up when you're seven or eight and you don't really know where they came from. But I remember the Mets like plug Phil Humber in a game that, actually was extremely important. It was like the middle of September in 07 and they were like collapsing and they were just like, their pitching was so barren that they were just like you first round draft pick. Here's the ball pitch to the Washington nationals. And like, he gave up like six runs and five innings. Like, you know, most pitchers do it's, it's a good thing. They actually got value back when they traded him because he became part of the Johan Santana package. And he never really, I think got on his feet. He had the one day where he threw the perfect game, but he was like kind of a, uh, a contact pitcher with good control who just got hit a little bit too hard in the big leagues. But Phil Humber is my guy. Remembering yeah. Phil. Good guy to remember. Uh, a guy that the baseball record books will, will remember for quite some time because he's one of the 21 guys who've ever thrown a perfect game. Yeah. That fateful day against the uh, the Seattle Mariners as a member of the White Sox. Um, did Brendan Ryan swing on that 3-2 pitch in the dirt? No, he absolutely didn't. That was the worst call. That was worse than the Beltron thing. But it's a perfect game. I could give him, I could, I could be okay with that call. Uh, I'm remembering. So I, the way it worked for me this week was a highlight went under, uh, on, on my timeline. And I thought to myself, Hey, that's a good guy to remember. I think I will remember him this week. That highlight came uh, uh, courtesy of, of Real Mets Legends, who's run of by... Of course it did. Ball. Of course it did. Who and, else? And that, that highlight was of this particular playing player hitting a, uh, a walk-off Grand Slam. And so I'm this week remembering Jose Bautista, who, who... Some people are still wondering, what did we actually get for trading Bautista to the Phillies? I don't, I don't know. Um, I'm not asking that question, but people are asking. Many Jose Bautista... Many people are asking this. Bautista, of course, uh, he was in the Mets system before being a Met, right? Like that years, yeah. years prior, he had been a Mets minor leaguer. I think they traded him for, um, I shouldn't say who it was. Cause I don't think they, did they trade him to the pirates or was it a team that then sent him to the pirates? He was drafted by the pirates and played for uh-huh. the pirates later. I'm, right. I'm looking this up now. God, um, I, like it's on the tip of my tongue, the player that they traded him for, but he was bad for a very long time. And then when the Mets got him, he wasn't very good either. Like he it, was I, sort I, of I the, in the twilight of his career, but he had his moments. He got on base a lot, which was fun. Yes, he, he did get on base quite a bit with the Mets. With the Mets, he had a three three fifty one on base, which is highly respectable. Not so bad. he was, 
He was uh, selected by the Orioles in the Rule 5 draft in 2003. Made his major league debut there in 04. Uh, and then was claimed off waivers by the Rays in June. Um, and then his contract was purchased by the Royals 25 days later. And then uh, that was only after 12 games of the Rays. Played 13 games for the Royals. And then they traded him to the Mets at the end of July at the trade deadline for Justin Huber. Right. Who then traded him minutes later mm-hmm. to the Pirates back for, for Ty or with Ty Wigginton for Chris uh, Benson. That was that that was the Chris Benson trade. Chris and Anna Benson trade. That was the Chris Benson Jeff Keppinger trade. Oh, we got Keppinger in that too. That's a fun one. Yeah. So big, big fan of the slap slap hitters. So he appeared on five different major league baseball rosters in one season. And the only person who has who has since done that is Oliver Drake, who for the second time in this episode gets a shout out despite never being a Met. Um, that's who I'm remembering this week, Jose Bautista. That's a he's fun a fun dude. He follows me on Twitter. He follows a lot of people. He needs to fo- he needs to follow me, Jose. You gotta follow me, man. I'm your biggest oh. fan, Jose. If you're listening, come on the pod. Come talk about your experiences oh, yeah. as a Met. Yeah, that'd be fun. I would love to get a guy who was on that 2018 team. Let's get Joey Bats on the on the Mets. Who, who get, I feel we're not even mentioning the fact that he wound up hitting 54 home runs in a season. Like that's yeah. We're mentioning he's a guy who lived like two different lives as a baseball player. He yep. was a guy who you remember, and then he became a guy who was a superstar. Remember, you remember and, like 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 the like everyone remembers. And then he went back to being a guy who you remember. Yeah, that's about that's a, that's a fun one, man. That's yeah, because he. I'm surprised uh, it took us this long to remember him. Yeah, me too. But he's a he's a good little. Uh, he's a good he's a good find. That was a weird team because I remember they were like, they had gotten off to their like ten game winning streak or whatever, and everyone thought they were going to the World Series again. And then everything that was going well just like slowly stopped going well. Like it started with like Matt Harvey being bad again. And then, like, Adrian Gonzalez started to regress. And then, like, both of their catchers got hurt. So they had Jose Lobatone catching every day. And then, like, I think that the organization could sense that fans were kind of, like, getting restless. And in their very, like, sign the aging veteran way, we're like, all right, we just flew Jose Bautista in. And he came in on, like, a, like 40 minutes before game time. And, like, in his first step bat, hit a double. And yeah. everyone was just, like, over the moon. Anyway, I, I know yeah. too much about like these teams, but it's I I seem to remember Bautista. We're like going off on incredible tangents right now when we should probably just wrap up the episode. Yeah. I, I remember it. him being a guy who like had like a couple weeks stint with the Mets, but he played in 83 games for this team in 2018. They did not, yeah, they did not sit him. They were insistent on so showing weird. fans Joey Bats. That's just way more games than I thought he was a Met for. He hit nine home runs. He OPS 718. Then went to the Phillies and OPS 870, which is weird, that's... and then called it quits in 27 games. Uh, yeah, that's a good place to put a pin in it for this week. Um, not the most fun subject matter to talk about this week, but, you know, we still had fun talking about it, I guess, for the most part. Yeah. Hopefully next week is, is more fun. Uh, hopefully we we – have some more positive stuff to talk about. So for Jack Hendon and all our colleagues at Metsmerized Online, my name's Sam Lebowitz and Mets fans. Have a pleasant good evening. Mm-hmm.